are listening to Equilibrium by Peace. My name is Serene Slavert, and today we're talking to Jessica Harris from the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries about keeping the dream alive and creating a sustainable sanctuary. Well, thanks so much for being here today, Jessica. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about GFAS. We had you on a couple years ago doing a webinar about the organization um, just to promote it to sanctuaries and show everybody how accessible it really is and the pros and pros with getting accredited. Um, there are some very interesting and things that I know we both discussed at length in the past with regards to sanctuary sustainability. And I just wanted to throw this question at you, working with so many sanctuaries, what is the stuff that you feel people need to focus on if they do want to fall into more a sustainable model? What are those shortfalls that you see people seem to find um, and miss and do lead to sanctuary closures or hardships? And then I guess it will naturally lead into my next question of how can GFAS help with making sanctuaries more sustainable? But I would love to discuss with you just those those couple of key things that you've seen. Sure, thank you so much for having me, Serene. We're always so happy to work with Peace and um, to um, try to help sanctuaries. You know, that's kind of our motto is helping sanctuaries help animals. So, you know, of course, GFAS um, accredits what we consider a true sanctuary. So sanctuaries that are operating sustainably and ethically and are kind of in it for the long run. Um, and that is uh, our specialty. However, um, we, uh, as you said, will part of what we do is help sanctuaries get there. So um, this is a really important topic because as you mentioned, I can name even a sanctuary that I've seen this week who is facing closures and looking for placement for animals. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners have faced that reality before. And, you know, that's one of the things that we strive to avoid um, <laughs> for so many reasons. Some are obvious, but I kind of want to couch our, our whole conversation in, like, why is this an important topic? Like, when should you do this? Um, because I think on its face, sustainability sounds like this sort of thing in the future that I've got to figure out and not something that may be on your mind, especially if you're sort of in the beginnings of, of starting a sanctuary. And so I want to couch it in the why, because otherwise I think this um, can almost seem like a far off dream or like topic for later. And so I, I think what probably everybody in this space can relate to is that everybody is doing this for the animals. I like to laugh because I've been doing animal work my whole life and I'm like, nobody is in this for the money, right? Like, no. <laughs> um, this is like the, the most, you know, labor of love type work that you could think of. And so I really want to kind of bring this home from this very like, big esoteric topic to like, why would I bother worrying about this? And it is for your residents. I want to kind of couch it all in responsibility to residents because I think everybody's on the same page that you're bound to be rescuing uh, farmed animals from inevitably bad situations, some certainly worse than others, but um, I don't think anybody is being rescued from like happy scenarios. And so it would be the worst case that 
they would have to end up back in that situation later. We never want to put them in back in danger again. So I think so much of this, um, I want to drive home two things. One is that I really want people to think about this concept in terms of responsibility and um, sort of uh, dedication to your animals. And that is why we're all here. Um, that's why GFAS exists. That's why sanctuaries exist. And then beyond that, this idea that this is not like a long-term goal that I've got to deal with later. I think that may be something that is on people's mind. I actually want to urge the opposite, which is that this should be the first thing on your mind when you're starting a sanctuary because life gets crazy. And once you're off the ground and going, you don't have time no, you don't. to do all of the things that make sure your sanctuary can go long. So I'm, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of ways to do this that I think we can talk about, but I first wanted to just kind of make sure everybody gets why we're even sort of harping on this. And it's, <laughs> yes. as with everything, it's for the animals. Um, we want to make sure that they have lifetime placement in a safe, you know, ethical situation. No, I agree fully with you on that one, 110%. And as an organization who, who's dealt with a couple of closures here in, in BC as well, and across provinces, um, it is one of those scary things and you see it happen because we all get into it for the same reason, to make sure that everybody, you want to take them into a safe space. But a lot of sanctuaries do feel, I feel, and you can correct me if you feel it's wrong, is do treat this more as a, a hobby than a business long-term. And that's why sustainability is so important within this space to consider, because we do want everybody to succeed. And um, succession planning is one of the last things that people seem to even not even take into consideration. And you're just like, it's so important. So yes, yeah, well, so where, where do you see, sorry, keep going. Well, and I was sorry to interrupt. I think it's worth saying too that, you know, I think sanctuary closure is sort of um, a very dramatic situation. Um, and I actually don't think that that's the only possible um, situation that can happen. So there's many steps along the way where we may not have reached sanctuary closure, but your animal care may be falling behind, your infrastructure might be falling apart, um, your finances are you know, struggling because you don't have time to dedicate to that aspect of the organization. There's so many pieces that can start to kind of crumble along the way. So yes, like I can refer to sanctuary closure as like you know, a really unfortunate endpoint, but there's a lot of other unfortunate things that can happen along the way. So we don't even have to go to that worst case scenario before I can make the case for implementing some of these things so that your animal care doesn't suffer and you know your finances don't don't get drained right away, all of these different pieces that lead to a sanctuary humming along over time. Exactly. And so what coming back to GFAS, I think sometimes when people think of getting accredited, they think of this huge monster ahead of them in a sense. <laughs> Um, hammer hitting over their heads. But if you can speak more about GFAS and how GFAS can help 
with these sustainability concerns? Sure, um, I'm happy to. So I certainly want to remind everybody about this webinar that you and I did together. Um, I think last year, year before, because this also had um, kind of more visuals that may help people, but that delved pretty, you know, step by step into the accreditation process to break it down. I won't like rehash all of that since that's available, but I want to direct people to that resource too. But I'll say this, um, what I always try to reiterate to people is that GFAS accreditation is not pass-fail. So is this a big endeavor? Absolutely. Do you need to have a lot of things prepared before you're ready for that point? Yes, you do. But that being said, I would like people to kind of think of accreditation process as having a third pair of eyes outside of your organization look at everything and say, you are super strong in this, this, this. Here's a couple tweaks you can make to strengthen your organization. Because we look not only at animal care that's provided, but we're also looking at all of your operational aspects. So those are some of the things you're referring to almost that a charity or nonprofit needs to operate like a business. And I think probably my guess as an animal person, because this might have been my reaction at some point, but when people say, I think a lot of people in this space probably may shy away from that um, idea because nobody's in it for the money. It's not, it's not that kind of business. But when we say that, I think what we mean is that you've got to steward your dollars really, really carefully. You've got to be um, on top of all of those moving parts just as a business is, again, this is one more way that you protect your residents. And so I encourage people sort of not to go in a, in a different direction mentally with run this as a business, um, only in the sense that you've got to kind of run it sustainably and, and manage it well over time for it to be successful. Um, and so, you know, I think having that external review is such an important part of the accreditation process. And I can tell, I can tell you that every, every one of us on the GFAS staff are your biggest fans. Like we are on your side. We are absolutely here to help. That's what we want to do. And so I may give you constructive feedback. Um, it may be things that you still need to work on. But it's having somebody kind of come in and be able to do that for you because it's really hard once you've been doing something for a while to be able to identify some of the things that need strengthening yourself. And to be, to be honest, I, I feel like I remember years ago, like when I was doing direct animal care and shelter work, um, I kind of, now when I look back at it, I'm like, I wish there had been somebody to come in and almost audit this operation because I could tell some things that were working well and some things that weren't, but it's really hard. Nobody has time necessarily to do that for themselves. And it's also really hard to do it objectively for yourself. So in some ways, if you can be open-minded about receiving feedback and, and trusting that we're, we're doing this in the best interest of you and the animals, I think there's a lot to be gained from it. And I feel like I would have loved 
for somebody to kind of give me like a, a pinpointed checklist of like, here's what you're doing awesome. Here's what needs a little work. Here's how to fix it. Because once you go through that process, we give you a customized report back of exactly that. Here's what you're doing great. Here's what you can strengthen. Here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not pass fail. <laughs> <laughs> I am with you 110%. Um, It's the same on this side. I'd rather, I want to have people tell me how I can do better for them, for the individuals that you're helping and taking care of. So that is exactly why I'm such a big fan of your organization. Thank you. Thank you. So yes. So with regards to, thank you for that overview. And yes, please, everybody go watch the webinar. It's so informative. Um, What are some strategies or ideas that you can give people just a couple with regards to, to think about with regards to making sure that you do take steps towards creating a space, which is a little bit, I know I'm going to use the big blanket word sustainable with regards to intake, paperwork, planning, all that. Sure. So I'll kind of break this down into a couple areas. You know, I think probably where a lot of people's minds can go and probably the most intuitive place to start is figuring out your capacity for care. Um, That's kind of a jargony buzzword in the shelter and sanctuary world. Um, So I've given Serene, she's going to include in these show notes. um, There's some resources that I'm going to give everybody for how to figure out what your capacity is, because it's not always that straightforward. Um, In fact, it's rarely straightforward at all. I think um, I I don't think anybody could claim to know the exact number, Um, but you've got a ballpark. So there's a lot of kind of factors that play into figuring out. um, And I guess I should explain even what I mean by capacity for care. It's really like how many animals can your sanctuary care for well? And there's so many factors that go into this. So, you know, one that's pretty obvious is space. Depending on where you live, that could look really different. Um, I think, you know, in my experience, like I'm really surprised, like having lived on the East Coast of the United States my whole life, like what, you know, sanctuaries out West look like, because they look so different. Um, You know, they may not be dependent on pasture space, for example, because it's, it's desert. But For other sanctuaries, pasture space is a factor. How many enclosures do you have? How big are they? Do they accommodate the needs of your different species? Farm animal sanctuaries have their work cut out for them because you don't have just one kind of animal. You've got five, six different species or more, 10 maybe, and every single one of them needs something different. Um, You know, a pig and a goat don't need the same things you know, some basics, sure, but their environments and what they prefer look really different. The amount of space they need might be really different. So I think that's, you know, infrastructure space is an obvious one. Quarantine space is another piece of that because anytime you take in a new animal or you have a resident who gets sick, you need to have space open and available. And I think kind of understanding the flow through the sanctuary of residents is important. This is an interesting question because I think this is going to differ depending on your mission. So if you are a group who offers lifetime sanctuary, it's going to be a little bit simpler because once a resident arrives, they're there to stay. They're not going anywhere. But if you're a sanctuary who does some adoptions or has foster homes, 
it gets a little bit more complicated. How long does an animal tend to stay at the sanctuary before they're adopted? So the fancy kind of term is length of stay. So you'll see that in those documents. But you've got to kind of figure out, you know, how that plays into things and how that plays into your space and how it plays into your staff time. I think that's a huge one, but it's a quick way to really run people into the ground and burn folks out if they're overburdened, if they have too much on their plate. And I just want to point out too that, you know, we'll talk about like personnel. It doesn't have to be paid staff. Um, It could be all volunteer run. However you do it, it still means that you've got to allocate, have enough people to do the work without overburdening them. I think financial capacity is a big one. Um, Hard to get around that. You've got to be able to sustain, you know, your operations and have a little bit in reserve. That's something that GFAS asks for because you never know what will happen. You never know like what will happen tomorrow. Um, So you want to have, you don't want to be, you know, running down to the last dollar. And, um, you know, I think other things can be access to veterinary care. You know, not every sanctuary is near a vet who is comfortable treating farmed animals or who's comfortable treating them in a sanctuary setting. That's a whole nother talk for a separate time. But, um, you know, so there's all these factors that play into figuring out how many animals is sustainable at once. And I think the obvious situation is that if you estimate too high, you may burn out your staff, you may burn through your, you know, financial reserve and, you know, you sort of risk doing too much too fast. And again, bringing this back down to having fewer number of animals, if that means that they are really secure, really well cared for in the long run, is more advantageous over time than rescuing as many as possible from the get-go and then not being able to handle that situation. I think I'm constantly saying, you know, um, take it slow. You know, slow and steady wins the race. And I think it's also deciding kind of what fits with your mission because you might have this enormous property that could fit 300 animals, right? Whatever you're thinking of rescuing. But maybe that's, you know, maybe your mission is not around rescuing that many. Maybe you want to stay a little bit smaller, but then spend the other time and resources that you have on education and outreach or advocacy work or whatever it is. And that's, that's fine. So I think it's also identifying what you want out of it. Um, Cause I, I, you know, I can understand completely why there's a real big sense of urgency around, but this animal is going to the slaughterhouse tomorrow if I don't take them, Mm -hmm. or they're going to an auction if I don't take them. There's, there's all these urgent things. And, and I think it always, you know, I can really empathize it is extremely hard to face animals in those situations and having to say no. But I I would say a couple, and Serene, you're welcome to jump in because I'm sure you've seen a lot of this doing the rescue work that Peace does. 
again, having been in that position myself, like there was a period in my life where I was the intake coordinator where I was. And um, for one, I would suggest never putting that duty on only one person. Yes. Um, because you can burn out. I'm, I'm sure I probably did at some point. You don't want that person, always, one person always answering the phone, answering the emails with these really sad, difficult situations. It really like wears on you. But if I go back to kind of how to fix this beyond figuring out, okay, my staff time, my infrastructure, my finances, my access to veterinary care and knowledge, all of those things, I can take X number of animals. And then the next piece is creating a written rescue or intake policy. Um, this is something GFAS asks for. And I think it would be easy to say, ah, this is like another piece of paperwork, you know, that they want. Um, but I want to give, I want to give you this idea and like try to put this in people's minds. Again, having been the person doing the intakes myself before. If you had a really solid rescue policy that said, this is our max capacity, I can take X number of chickens, X number of sheep, and so on. This is how I prioritize which animals I take in. So my first stop is like cruelty case, you know, from like the local humane society. My next stop is strays or animals that fell off a truck or whatever it is. My next stop is owner surrenders, whatever it is. And your organization dictates those priorities. But that policy is created not just by one person who deals with the intakes. That policy should be approved by the board, talked about by the board, by all of the personnel, whether that's the director, the founder, the volunteers, whoever is affected by those, put that together. Because when you have a written policy that somebody has to follow mentally for somebody who's responsible for saying no, because you have to say no mm-hmm. a lot. A lot. Um, you can't take them all. Um, I actually think this is really helpful for, for staff mental health to be able to say, I know that myself, my colleagues, we've put together this super solid intention, this policy, we've written it down for how we approach this, how we prioritize our space. I know we can't take them all. And then I can sort of relegate that responsibility to this policy. It's no longer me personally saying, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to throw that out there that rather than thinking of this as like, ah, oh, one more policy I have to make, one more, you know, paperwork I have to do, think about how that kind of echoes, echoes down for your sanctuary, because I guarantee that it's not going to take away the hurt of having to say no and knowing when you go to sleep that night that this animal is still in whatever situation. I'm not going to pretend that that's the case. But for me, it was really important to know that at least I've got this, this backup that says I'm doing the best I can. I know that in the long run, this will serve the greater good, um, for, for all the other animals that will need me. Yeah. And I think one of the hard realities in this space is that we're never going to rescue our way out of it. And I think that as, as someone who's been doing the intake, like the, the getting the requests, it does take a mental and emotional toll. I've 
had many conversations with sanctuary operators. And I think you have to, this is the hard thing. And this is what leads to not being sustainable is a lot of people get into this with heart. And it's really hard because heart's not going to pay the bills. Heart's not going to make sure everybody's got the, the best enclosures, the best care. We love the heart, but we need the business side as well. Like what you were talking about to make sure that that everybody is taken care of, not just the individuals who are rescuing, but staff, volunteers, all those individuals as well. So yeah, it, it's such a, I agree with you 110%. It's such a hard thing and it's so important to have that policy. And that- Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can say truly that myself and everybody I work with here at GFAS, we have so much respect for sanctuary operators because we know that everybody experiences like a certain amount of trauma when you face these realities day in and day out when you're the front line always getting called in but I think a lot of what we're talking about today you never want to be the person they're calling about you never want to be the reason that those animals later down the line have to go through somebody else's intake policy right like and most sanctuaries I don't know about you in the states but most sanctuaries in Canada everybody's full if not over full Yeah. So you're you're pretty much putting them back into the same space that they were in before you rescued them, right? So we don't want that. Yeah, no, I think um, so much of what we're talking about, Serene, is um, I like to think of it as insurance policies yeah. for your residents. So, I mean, sure, you have your actual insurance policy, but then all these other bits and pieces that if you, as you say, move from a hobby to really formalizing a sanctuary, formalizing all your processes. You know, I, I think that that's an insurance policy for your animals because every single one of those documents, every single one of those things that you put a lot of thought into makes sure that they remain safe mm-hmm. um, and ideally remain safe with you. <laughs> Cause I, you know, I think we've both talked about this, but again, I can, completely empathize with the urgency people feel. I know this animal's in like imminent danger. How can I say no? And so I want to point out too, though, that the alternative could be that you say yes now, and how much worse is it if a few years from now, you haven't done all this legwork and you haven't put in all the kind of insurance policies that I'm talking about. Now you have a relationship with this animal on top of everything and you have to rehome them or find somewhere to go so that they don't end up right back where they started. I mean, that seems like so hard. We don't want anybody to ever be in that position. And I think, unfortunately, not everybody gets rehomed. Like that's what people need to realize. There isn't, because I think even with, if you, I know we talked about it too. It's like, what when somebody thinks about like oh well if this doesn't work out I'm sure another sanctuary I'll just mm-hmm. rehome them with another sanctuary and I'm like no that's that's unfortunately like everybody's full if not over full so it can't it can't be your fallback yeah no totally agreed and as you say the numbers you know especially um especially in the farmed animal space the numbers are just so staggering that everybody's full and everybody's constantly having to say no. It's just impossible to keep up. But I'll say this, that I've never started a sanctuary. (laughs) I don't know if I will, but um, 
But if I did, and the way that I've seen some groups do it very, very thoughtfully is before you're even in a place where you're entertaining rescue requests, button up all of these pieces, have your ducks in a row before you even start, because then you can say yes to certain things. But I would argue that you want to have, start so slow, build all of these pieces, all of your, you know, as I call them, your insurance policies um, into your operation so that you've got it in place and you're ready to go. And you're not scrambling to figure some of these things out on the fly because you're not going to have time. Like I know, I've again, like want to tell you guys, like I've been in those shoes. Like I've been the one who's like still, you know, at the shelter, still wherever at like nine o'clock at night or whatever, doing animal care. And I didn't have time to look at like paperwork. I didn't have time to answer emails. I didn't have time to do any of those things. So I understand there's just not enough time in the day, but if you can get this stuff figured out from the get-go again, this is why I say, don't think of this as like, I'll figure it out later, (laughs) how to keep this going a long time. If you figure it out up front, your life will be so much easier, as easy as sanctuary life can be. So still super hard, but I mean, you won't have to figure this out and panic about it as you go. You'll know that you've got it. Yeah. You've got it. Yeah, put a good foundation down before you build. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, we talked about kind of capacity and again, um, really, really hard to figure it out. But again, I'm including some resources for how to think this through and try to get like a rough calculation for your own sanctuary um, on roughly what your capacity is. And I'll say that there aren't a lot of sanctuary specific resources for this. So a lot of the real Um, like heavy lifting for this has been done by the shelter, like companion animal shelter community, but there's so many pieces that apply to sanctuary work. So, you know, you can probably disregard like stuff that talks about spay neuter programs. And like I said, some things about flow through may not apply, Um, but there's so many other pieces that do. And so if nothing else, it gives you all the things you've got to like consider as kind of a nerd. Like I was like, Ooh, like an equation, like a thing, like a mathematical model for how to figure out like what I can do. Like, this is cool. Um, so it's kind of nice just to see that somebody's really thought this through already. And like, I don't have to just like try to come up with this out of thin air. Yeah. Um, free tools. It's always nice to have free tools. Yes. So, you know, beyond that, um, cause I think that's again, like the first thing people think of, right. Is, is your, your number of animals and your capacity, Um, I think we've already touched a lot on this, but I just want to drive this home that the other thing across the board um, to really protect your sanctuary and your animals are policies, written policies and protocols. I know everybody's probably rolling their eyes right now. They're like, oh God, here she goes, the paperwork. And I've had a lot, this is like a really common conversation that I go through with sanctuaries about like, why? Because they're like, well, of course I know how to do this. And I'm like, I know you do, but what happens if something happens to you today and you can't be here tomorrow or you can't be here for the next year? What happens if you're the only one who has this in your head? So I'm talking about like standard operating procedures. So that means like, what's the flow of your day? 
Like you come in and do what? Like what happens when you step in the door? Okay, you give everybody water. Here's like your feeding schedule. Who do you clean in what order? What do you use? All of these pieces that like you've got in your head, but start to get them on paper. Not only, again, as an insurance policy, that if something happens to you, somebody else could step in and they're not going to do it just as well as you will, but they're not going to come in clueless either. They can be like, well, here's this huge binder and it tells me like, okay, now I feed this, that, and the other to the pigs. So your animals are assured to maintain some of their care and quality of care if you've got that in place and you've gotten written down. Um, one like easy tip, cause I think a lot of people, um, have this on like whiteboards in a barn. Yeah. Take a picture of it and start with that. You don't have to like do these things. Like you don't have to have like a 20 page, you know, manual overnight, but start with like this basic outline. And the other nice thing is that as you have new volunteers or new staff members come in, this is like a training tool too. And I think a lot of people get hung up because it feels very daunting because they're like, well, there's always somebody who has some special situation. I'm like, of course, but surely there's some basic, you know, schedule of the day that you can get down on paper. And that goes to medical care. So writing down, you know, every year, here's what they get their vaccines, their dewormer, their hoof care, their shearing, you know, how often, when does the shearer come? All of those things. And even like financial documents, having those like lined up, if you need an audit, having that done so that you've got like all of these things um, on paper, because I think over time, this is where you want to head. Um, and again, all of these things are out of protection for your residents. And I think, you know, I think there's probably a lot of, I, I don't know, I hope, I hope not. Maybe there's some folks out there who are like, this is far-fetched, this isn't going to happen. Maybe, maybe not though. Like I've seen it happen a lot. I've been the one who's had to come into an organization, not with GFAS, but in, in past lives, who's <laughs> had to come into an organization with no written protocol, no, no maintained medical records for animals and have to piece together what does this animal need? And I can tell you without a doubt in my mind, there were residents who fell through the cracks and had subpar medical care, subpar daily care, because I had to play catch up to figure out what was going on and what they needed, what their history was. So I try to, I, I think a lot of these things feel sort of lofty and like these big goals, but I really want to try to bring this down to like a practical level for folks because I've, I've, like I say, I've like kind of been in these shoes in times where I'm like, I really wish that the person who was here before me had kept medical records, had kept digital medical records somewhere that were backed up and not on a piece of paper that like, you know, a cat spilled their water on or <laughs> Um, this is just real, real life here, folks, but yeah. um, you know what I mean? But because the, re the animals suffer for it. Um, and it's, it's really, you know, I, I know everybody's got it in their head, but having it written down is important. So <laughs> I'll get off my, <laughs> my no, write it down. I think so it, it makes, it makes complete sense if you realize for whom you're doing it and why you're doing it.
you're doing it to keep them safe. And I think, I, I know I mentioned it before, um, even just getting life insurance on yourself, people don't like thinking mm-hmm. about that, but especially if you're a volunteer run organization and if something falls mainly on yourself, you're it, having that security blanket, it just makes sense because what if something happens to you? Somebody can quit, you can cross the street tomorrow, but nobody wants to think about that. And that's why we're having these conversations because it's so important to think about these things to keep everybody safe. Because that's the whole reason we're doing this. Yeah, for sure. And I think some of this is tied to, you know, kind of this other topic that we, <laughs> that I think, as you say, you know, is hard to think about, but, and that's succession planning. Yeah. Um, I think even, even aside from like immediate succession for a founder or anybody else or an executive director, um, it's even again, like cross-training other people so that there's not only one person who knows what's going on in a given situation. There should be some backup folks who have, they might not have every piece, but they've got a lot of it. Like they can step in and, you know, run that operation with like reasonable, you know, care and everything else given. And it's also, you know, kind of chain of command. So I think that's like a weird term, but I think what I mean by it is um, who's in charge, like where, who's making what decisions. So like if something happens, who steps in for the executive director, identify that person, make sure they know you give them like whatever, a weekly update of what's going on. Um, make sure they're cross-trained to be able to handle animal care. You don't want to have only one person who knows how to do something or pull in your board. Cause again, this is not, this is not limited to paid staff. This can be a key volunteer. Cause you've, you know, let's hope everybody has, like I had some in the past, like some volunteers who I could count on with my life. Like I knew that they would be there. They were there so often that they knew I didn't have to do stuff because I could, they already knew what to do. They were, they were good. So it doesn't have to be paid staff, pull in your board member. So if something happens to somebody, oh, okay. Our treasurer knows these pieces and can step in and take care of this. Our secretary knows these other things and can do this. This key volunteer knows all the animal care. Let them do that. And again, writing it down because the two things it kept yeah. goes hand in hand that you write everything down and i know it. i'm a broken record with some of my things no yeah. you're not a broken record at all no 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 i just i'm like yeah it's such a good a good package deal right have things written down but also have those key people yeah for sure and i you know i'll kind of bring up this topic too and i think this is probably one of the one of the last big pieces beyond and i'll, I'll kind of kind of try to bring this all together in the end here, Serene, but um, I think probably the other, you know, potential threat to a sanctuary being sustainable around a long time are emergencies and planning for them. Again, not something anybody enjoys like thinking through, but this in particular has been really at the forefront of my mind with what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, We've had some contact with groups that are on the ground in Poland and in Romania. So I have some like firsthand account of, of what they're seeing. And, and frankly, even for them just being close to the crisis saying, 
we've got to put emergency plans into place because this is not a stable situation. So this has really been like big on my mind lately because I mean, hopefully none of us face something this dramatic, but an emergency plan can be anything from like weather related to, you know, human crises like this, um, or even, you know, otherwise looming on my mind is, you know, I think all the sanctuaries right now are very, very worried about the avian influenza outbreak. So again, emergency biosecurity protocols. I think there's, you know, you can kind of figure out for your location if it's weather like, oh, I'm, you know, likely to be affected every year by snow. What happens if I lose power? What happens if the barn's on fire? These are all things that you don't ever want to be figuring out on the fly. Like these are all things that you want figured out ahead of time because it's life or death. GFAS has a lot of resources um, and I have some very well-versed colleagues who have taught me even so much about fire safety and emergency planning. And I mean, getting down into like the nitty gritty of like, how's your barn laid out? Which doors do you open or close if like this is on fire or that's on fire? Like, how do you get them out? But I think having all of those plans ahead of times Again, I think a lot of people feel like this is like, you know, kind of tedious, but doing drills periodically of what you do, because I don't know about you, but if there's an emergency, I'm going to panic. Like, I'm not going to think, oh, let me go pull out my protocol right now. I've got to have it practiced too. And there's some like such, such innovative and smart things that I've seen groups do. I'm constantly learning from the sanctuaries too. Like but ideas that's why that they have. You learn, you teach us when we come to you. We get accredited. Um, we all become better at it, right? Listen, I'm forever uh, learning because I don't think anybody could ever know everything. But, you know, again, like these are things that protect your animals. This is an insurance policy for your residents against all manner of tragedies that can happen so that you're not at the mercy of something wiping out your sanctuary because you weren't ready. And a lot of these things, again, you don't need to start from scratch. Like there's so many ideas and templates out there. We have some, I have most of our groups, like if I ask them, like, can I share this protocol you have or this picture? They're like, yeah, share it. You know, so many of them, like everybody wants to help each other. And so, but as tedious as this can be, how much peace of mind and safety do you buy for yourself by having this really ingrained and written down? Because you could, you know, you could, again, life or death with some of these things and, you know, can really affect your organization in the long term. And I'll say to, you know, in this um, vein of like kind of camaraderie um, between sanctuaries, um, although, as you say, you know, if something happens with a particular group, if they have to rehome their animals, all those types of things, it is really hard because most sanctuaries are full. But I do think it's so critical um, to sustainability for sanctuaries to be networked, to talk to each other, to share, um, which is like why we are so happy about peace doing what you do, because it's it is so important. There's one to support each other because this is really hard work. 
Um, and it's like uncharted territory too, in so many ways. Like there's not a lot of outside experts in this field. Um, I think we're getting better and better, especially, you know, I would say North America, especially is becoming increasingly well-networked. And we'd like to see that happen globally, but slowly, but surely, but having relationships to share best practices, to say, if this happens, can you help me with this? Or I've seen sanctuaries, you know, share restraint equipment or tools that they have. So they don't, one of them have to have it, but building those relationships, you know, of course, like not every sanctuary gets along, not everybody has sort of the same philosophy, but I, not that you have to be friends with everybody, but there's surely enough people around you that you can make some of those connections because nobody wants to operate in a vacuum. That's another liability for you. And I would say to even um, beyond like sanctuary to sanctuary, even for groups to think about like having a relationship, building some kind of relationship, you might not be like best buddies, but with the local humane society or animal control, um, those can be really important relationships. They may not know, even agree with you on everything, but if you have a respectful relationship, you save animals that way. They might help you out if you're in a pinch and need something. Other businesses in the community or ways that you can reach more volunteers, like any of those things. But I want to just stress, like, um, for so many <laughs> reasons, um, whether it's financial, whether it's mental and emotional, you know, whether it's like practical as far as animal care, or anything else, it's so, so important to try to foster relationships. And, you know, we're happy, we, we try to help network all of the groups that we work with and reach many more, you know, that's always part of our goal. So I'm always happy. And even if you're not a GFAS accredited sanctuary, you know, I'm always happy to try to connect people to each other sanctuaries make the best mentors for each other so i'm always happy to make connections like that for anybody listening if you know if you need that thank you again so much to jessica for joining us today if you want to learn more about gfast do check out their website sanctuaryfederation.org we will also include all the links in our description below for this podcast and as always thank you so much for joining us today and until next time take care